there's something on a societal level in terms of some myths that are perpetuated and beliefs that are perpetuated around hard work and perfectionism and achievement and also about rejection and failure. And I think a lot of organizations are even dealing with this now and trying to tell people that it's okay to fail and it's okay to take risks because that's a lot of the time where the growth happens. I know you are doing the best that you can right now. Your relationships matter to you. You are important. And yet over time, we get stuck. We get lost or we stop showing up as our true self. We get hung up on the stories we tell ourselves, the comparisons, or feeling like we are not good enough. I'm Not Your Shrink is a podcast aimed at helping you feel connected to yourself, to others, and to live a life that is in line with what matters most to you. I'm Dr. Tracy Dalglish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair, and being a wife and mother to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you change the dialogue in your life. Let's dive in. Hey there, and thank you for tuning in to another episode. Today, I am sitting with Amanda Tobe. She is pursuing her license as an organizational psychologist and is based in Toronto. She works with clients to build their confidence, manage stress, communicate effectively, and overcome performance anxiety in the workplace. She has developed several workbooks that she uses with her clients to empower them on their journeys. And in addition, she speaks to leaders and companies about topics to cultivate safe, healthy, and mindful workplaces. She has written several publications on interview anxiety and public speaking anxiety and has been featured in media outlets such as Harvard Business Review, Globe and Mail, Forbes Magazine, and Men's Health Magazine. She also maintains a blog where she aims to make research accessible and share strategies that she uses with her clients. Now, before we dive into this episode, I would love to hear from you. Head over to iTunes and leave me a review so others can also reach this podcast or take a screenshot and share it to your social media platform and tag me and let me know that you're listening and to help others reach this podcast. Let's dive into the episode. Amanda, I am so thrilled to be talking with you today about imposter syndrome. It is such an important conversation for us to be having, as we know from the research that up to 70% of individuals will experience imposter syndrome. And this is just one of the topics that many of our listeners have asked me to dive into. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Before we dive in, tell me three things. Tell us three things about you. Sure. So three things about me. The first one is that I grew up in a really small town outside of Waterloo with less than 1,300 people, if you can imagine that. And um, we couldn't even keep a convenience store in the town where I lived in. So the reason why I also share that with you is that I think that I still have part of that small town mentality as part of my identity and who I am today. So I still carry that through. The second thing about me is that I'm a mother to two wonderful and highly spirited young girls. I have a four-year-old and an almost two-year-old, and I can certainly relate to the complexities and challenges that many parents are going through right now with COVID, in particular, having to work and parent and show up for their kids and deal with emotional stress. So I can certainly relate to that. 
The third thing about me is that over this last year and a half, I've decided to make a major career pivot in now pursuing my license as an organizational psychologist. Prior to pursuing my license, I was working for five years in HR and talent management and talent assessment. And I have my PhD in industrial organizational psychology, but it's an entirely different thing to become a psychologist. It's a whole different process as I'm yes. sure you can see, Tracy. Yes. So so help our listeners know because they're those are two big words. What does industrial organizational psychologist what does that mean? What, what do they do? Sure. So industrial organizational psychology is a study of human behavior in the workplace. And what we do is that we help individuals, teams, and leaders with thriving in the workplace and with becoming successful. And obviously, the measures of success and the outcomes of success mean really different things depending on who the client is or what their aspirations are. It can mean helping, supporting with productivity, with creating creativity, with organizational culture, organizational development, many different topics related to the workplace. Thank you. Great. So, okay. So we are diving into imposter syndrome today and, um, you know, I, I love the timing of our conversation. This will be released a little bit later, of course, but it's coming a week after speaking at the gem conference where I spoke in front of women in business, women who are owning small businesses and entrepreneurs that, um, this, this issue of imposter syndrome and how fear shows up in our business and really gets in the way. So I told this story there, but I, I thought I would tell it here for, for the listeners. And I'm sure that you can relate to something like this as well. Um, the, my husband came home one day and it was just weeks before opening up my clinic here at Integrated Wellness. And he came home and said, look, I've got this opportunity for you. And you're probably going to say, no, it's in four days. Um, but it's a speaking event and I'm wondering if you want to do it. And I thought, okay, you know, wow, four days, not a lot of notice. Um, but I was connecting with my values and what was really important to me. And one of the things that I've been trying to do is trying to say yes to opportunities and to experiences. And then also yes to contributing to, um, getting what we do each day outside of our office. I know you can relate to that as well, being on Instagram and the workbooks and your publications. So as soon as I said, yes, then he said, great, it's on mental health. (laughs) And... My, my thought immediately, so quickly was, I can't speak on mental health. <laughs> I don't know everything. <laughs> it's a big topic. It's a huge topic. And, and you know, it's just, I tell this story because I think a lot of people will look at professionals and, you know, as I'm looking at you, as we're recording this, I would see your degrees on the wall and they'll, they'll think, oh, well, you have the degrees on the wall. You don't struggle with imposter syndrome. You've probably never experienced that. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I have. And in fact, right after finishing my PhD, my first real job, I worked at a hospital And that was my first time coming really face-to-face with imposter syndrome and how debilitating it can be. And for me, how it showed up was really with my supervisor and feeling like, or my leader at the time, and feeling like I didn't know enough about, again, just what you're saying, Tracy, didn't know my stuff, um, didn't deserve to be there. And 
part of it with her was like not, I think sometimes speaking different languages. I mean, we weren't actually speaking a different language, but just like we came from different backgrounds, different training. And right. I think that I internalize that as I don't know enough versus there's maybe a communication barrier here. There's a communication difference. And so the me now recognizing what I was going through would probably approach that very differently, but it certainly undermined my performance. It certainly um, affected my self-confidence and it took me some, some time, some years to rebuild that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's such a difficult one when we confront, when we have to confront that eh? when it comes up and whether we're training or we're trying something new or we're taking risks. And what's interesting is that I don't think at the time I identified it as imposter syndrome. Mm. It was just like, oh, I'm feeling really anxious with my leader. Like I couldn't, sometimes it's helpful to, to know like where this is coming from. Where do I go to look for more information on this? And so I'm hoping that part of our conversation today will help people with kind of getting there and understanding what they're going through and be able to relate to other people on it. Absolutely. So let's help people label then what this is. Because when I asked my followers, about half of them didn't know what imposter syndrome is. So so what is imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome is a psychological phenomenon and it's a self-esteem issue. And oftentimes it's a feeling of being a fraud when we relate to in thinking about our accomplishments and our achievements. And oftentimes people with imposter syndrome have the tendency also to attribute your successes to random chance and things like that are outside of our control. And what it also is, it's an assumption that other people are better than you. And it's also a belief that you're not good enough. And ultimately this undermines our performance, it undermines our confidence. And it causes a lot of insecurity and stress and fears related to rejection, fears about not being liked, fears about not knowing enough, not being validated, many different types of fears. Mm -hmm. Support for today's episode comes from Loop Earplugs. For so long after having children, I kept wondering why I was easily overwhelmed and felt like an angry mom. The noise from the kids, the dog barking, and the sounds around me from everyday life. But I now understand that I'm not an angry mom, and instead, my nervous system gets overwhelmed and overstimulated, which is why I've been turning more and more to my loop earplugs to help me stay more regulated and engaged with the family. I'm using Loop Engage to help dampen the sound around me. And these Loop earplugs allow me to still be with every beat and conversation. I still hear Greg. I can still hear the kids. I love that they are so comfortable and they come with eight silicone ear tips to ensure the right fit for you. The best part for me is that I take them everywhere with me. They are proving the test of time and not to mention they're stylish in my ears. Plus, we love the kids versions, which we've been able to take to the movies for our kids. I'm so excited that Loop Earplugs is offering you, my community, a discount so that you too can tackle that overstimulation while still being engaged with the activities and people you love. Visit loopearplugs.com and use my code loop times Dr. Tracy for 10% off your order. That's L-O-O-P-X-D-R-T-R-A-C-Y for 10% off your order. 
Support for today's episode comes from Cozy Earth. You know I am all about caring for ourselves, especially in these busy years with our young kids. We are pulled in so many directions, but I think it's so important for us to find ways to nurture ourselves that require no additional time from us. I should probably let you in on one of my favorite things to do to look after me, and that is to get a good night's sleep on amazing sheets. I am beyond thrilled to bring you Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding products with an exclusive Mother's Day offer just for my listeners. We've got a code. It's SHRINK, S-H-R-I-N-K, for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. Now, I didn't believe it until I tried them, but I firmly stand by my sleep improving with the temperature regulating technology, which adapts to your body's needs. For the past year, I have not slept on any other brand of sheets. Cozy Earth uses the very best fabrics, materials, and wares, offering superior softness for you to sink into at the end of those long days. I look forward to getting into bed, and we've been loving the sheets for over a year and their sleepwear is so unbelievably soft and it's made with such great quality. But the best part is that if you're worried about commitment, enjoy a 100 night sleep trial and a 10 year warranty on all of your purchases. Head over to CozyEarth.com and use promo code SHRINK for an exclusive 35% off and give the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth. Yeah. So there's this sense of like, like people aren't able to take in that there's something about them that is able to accomplish the the task or the space that they're in that instead they, they talk about random chance. So like what kinds of things do you hear people do when they externalize their accomplishments? I think it's very common for someone as an example, who's been a hard worker their whole lives. And sometimes I think they'll attribute again, getting a degree or um, getting so far with, with some of their, the things that they've been going after in their life. And they'll attribute it to hard work and not to their natural abilities or their skills. Mm. And I, I work with a lot of wildly successful people. And it's, again, it doesn't matter how many degrees you have. And it's the kind of thing where more degrees is not going to cure the problem. More information and more education and training is not going to solve the problem. So it's really about dealing with that internal struggle and coming kind of face to face with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important to highlight that it's not about the outside stuff that's going to continue or to try to make this go away. It's not the degrees. It's not the next business deal or the next presentation or the next meeting or client that's going to make this feeling go away. Because it's, I, I can imagine, well, I know that people really get wrapped up doing that. And yeah, it's fascinating too. Like a lot of people with imposter syndrome, again, will have these really impressive resumes and they're, I mean, it's nice to have some humility, obviously, but they're not defined. They don't really look at that resume and they're not, it doesn't serve as validation for them also about that. Like, you know, you've learned a lot in this, in your time, you have a lot of experience, you have a lot to offer. And so it affects people, it affects their job search, it affects, you know, leaders in terms of how they're showing up for their teams and just people more generally, you mentioned entrepreneurs and just people more generally in their, in their jobs. Why do people get imposter syndrome? A lot of research points to core beliefs as being kind of the starting point of imposter syndrome. And so beliefs 
are positive or negative. And there are ones that we are, are raised with and ones that we eventually internalize as our own. And so beliefs are really facts um, and truths about the world that we come to view as our own and, and truths that we believe about ourselves. And so a lot of times it's these core beliefs. And a lot of times, even in the work I do with my clients, it's surprising sometimes how, how much we can tie these core beliefs back to their earlier experiences that they've had. And I think also, Tracy, there's something on a societal level in terms of some myths that are perpetuated and beliefs that are perpetuated around hard work and perfectionism and achievement and also about rejection and failure. And I think a lot of organizations are even dealing with this now and trying to tell people that it's okay to fail and it's okay to take risks because that's a lot of the time where the growth happens. And so I I think that really it's a few different reasons, but a lot of it seems to be traceable linked back to our core beliefs. Yeah. So, so just thinking about this time around COVID, you know, I know many of the people that I'm working with are struggling with this idea of um, not being able to get everything done in a day or that they should keep producing at the same level. And this pressure that people are feeling to continue to perform while they're discounting the fact that we are sitting in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, I think that we're sometimes forgetting that there is a whole layer of ambiguity that's happening right now that um, can also make it really difficult for people to... You can't show up in the same way that you used to in the workplace. And so, as an example, if you're not comfortable using Zoom or some kind of online platform, it can be really difficult to, I guess, operate in the same kind of way. Like, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a really challenging time for people. I really like that you're talking about the idea around beliefs that um, what's important here is it's these stories that we start to tell ourselves and we get so wrapped up into. And, and we know that these stories are are the way that our mind makes sense of, of our experiences early on and our experiences day to day. And they guide us and, and they can become quite intense at times, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you're just hit the nail on the head in terms of core beliefs. And a lot of research has actually shown that there's quite a strong linkage between core beliefs leading to negative thoughts and those negative thoughts then lead to negative emotions. And so it's so important to start with core beliefs because they really seem to be at the start of the causal chain of events that Mm. happen and that seem to perpetuate the imposter syndrome. How does imposter syndrome affect us? It's uh, something like many things in psychology where there is a spectrum of high to low, but also within that spectrum, there's a lot of variation and variability in terms of how people actually express and experience the imposter syndrome. And so there's a number number of different categories that I usually think of or go through with clients when we're talking about imposter syndrome. And the first one is deals with the physiological symptoms. And for a lot of people with imposter syndrome, it causes tightness, a lot of tightness in the body. So tightness in your chest, sometimes a clenched jaw. Also your heart racing is a very common symptom as well. And then a third one is having your mind racing and, um, whether it's no worry or having this fear sometimes occupies our brain in these ways. And 
when we're so worried about something, our, our mind tends to race. And a second category would be the psychological and emotional side of things. And so we talked about some of those earlier, but it would be things such as, you know, insecurities and the fears again about rejection and not being liked. And it's anxiety. It's very anxiety provoking. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the panic disorder type of symptoms kind of result for people like where they'll feel, have like a dissociative experience of being outside of their body. And then obviously self-esteem is a huge one and, and just overall emotional and physical stress on the body. And then the third category is actually one that I feel like people know less about, which is the behavioral manifestation of it and how they're actually showing up or not showing up as a result of the imposter syndrome and really how, for example, how they're showing up in the workplace. So for example, a lot of people with imposter syndrome will devalue their own worth um, when it comes to setting their salaries or even whether they're um, able to do certain speaking functions or like to show up as as a speaker. So, you know, am I someone who's able to do that? But also for leaders, I often also really see it come up with also come up with in terms of their decision-making and being afraid to make risky decisions, which is often Mm. a big part of being a leader. And then also sometimes being a micromanager because you don't want your team to look bad. You don't want yourself to look bad. So sometimes it comes up in those types of ways. And then, yeah, just in general, as I mentioned too, just being afraid to take the spotlight, not put your hand up for growth opportunities, not put your hand up for stretch assignments in the workplace also. So there's a lot of different ways that it manifests itself. And I think a lot of times people are very, are more aware of like, you know, maybe more aware of what it is and how it maybe it could be, how they experience it, but like, how is this actually affecting you in the workplace and how you're showing up personally and professionally? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I can imagine too that if it's not showing up professionally yet, um, then then it could also be impacting other areas of your life. If you think of your relationship, right? So if you are really battling with that, I'm not good enough, everything has to be perfect, that then you are overworking and perhaps you spend less time with your partner or less time with the kids, that it can drive you to do things that are going to impact the other realms of, of your life. I'm really glad you brought that up because there certainly is a spillover effect with most things. And I'm sure you can appreciate even yourself, Tracy, that on certain days when you're undergoing stress, and obviously imposter syndrome is a stress, sometimes your your patience is shorter for your kids and for other people. Like you're not showing up the way you want to as a parent then. So, and I know that's certainly true for myself and um, I'm constantly doing work around just my doing mental check-ins on myself um, especially now that we're all together during COVID 24 yes. And so just trying to plan some of those check-ins for myself so that I, being aware of how you feel is about half of it so that you're then feel like you're more in control of your feelings. Yeah, absolutely. There's such power in bringing awareness to where am I right now? And, you know, managing so many demands, it, it absolutely is something that can spill over into my relationships and my family life. And, I try really hard to to balance that by 
when I'm with my kids, I try to just be with the kids. And that anytime the work stuff pops up, I'm really trying to just put that in the box. And I can come back to that later. And I'm coming back to if we're playing with the blocks or the Hot Wheel track or something. So that I'm just in that moment rather than being caught up in my mind of all of the other stuff of whether I'm going to get it or not. There's nothing worse than your child saying to you, like, you know, mommy, can you get off your phone? Like, there's oh, nothing. No. Like, when they know, like, they, they know. They're so, they're yes. very, they're brilliant. Um, already at such a young age, they have a very high sense of what's happening around them. And so, yeah, I really am similar to you. I really try to put my phone across the room or somewhere where it's not in reach. But sometimes I do have to finish something. I do have to finish an email or things like that. So I try to explain that, but it, it certainly can creep over. Yes, absolutely. What about the self-sabotaging? With, so what, what I see with imposter syndrome is sometimes people self-sabotaging where they won't prepare for an interview because they don't feel worthy of it. I'm not going to get it anyway. So they're not actually putting their best foot forward when they actually get to the interview and self-sabotaging in other ways too, such as like, again, we talked about occupying, being in the spotlight, being afraid to be in the spotlight and giving your work away to other people to present because you don't want to do it. So mm-hmm. that's another example of self-sabotaging in the workplace. Support for today's episode comes from ZocDoc. We all know there are things in life we have to compromise on, like the right way to load a dishwasher or whether those socks are going to stay on the floor for a week. Okay, in all seriousness, but when it comes to your mental health, there is no compromise. So we don't need to go back to that one therapist or one physician who didn't align with what we need just because they're available right now. We don't need to compromise on the care we need for our overall wellness. Instead, this is where ZocDoc comes in. This is a place where you can find and book hundreds of types of doctors, including therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. And you can find someone who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your well-being. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of patient-reviewed in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. Go to ZocDoc.com I-N-Y-S and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. If I needed this app, this is one that I would be going to. That's zocdoccom slash I-N-Y-S and get the care that you need today. Amanda, I think what you're talking about is really important here. And you're really emphasizing that the beliefs that we hold are really important in terms of dealing with imposter syndrome. So, you know, those beliefs I know so many can relate to, which sounds like I'm not enough. I'm a failure. I, I can't do this, or even things like, am I liked? You know, am I liked? Am I approved by other people? So where do we start making changes to overcome imposter syndrome? When I work with clients through imposter syndrome, I call the, the three R's. It's a process that we go through. And the three R's stand for review, rewrite, and rewire. Rewire or, or respond being the final R. And the first R is, again, review. And this one is, this step is all about cultivating self-awareness. And it's all about observing and getting really clear on 
what are your existing set of beliefs? What are the beliefs that you were even raised with? And so I've created a workbook on that, on this topic. And then I take clients through this, but basically I'll, I'll kind of give you the overview of how, of what it looks like is. So again, the first step is I present them with a list of about 20 to 30 categories relating to perfectionism, learning, being liked their shortcomings, rejection, and it kind of goes through and circle some of the categories and then they write the old belief or the existing belief. Okay. And an example of an existing belief is it is important what people think of me. There's, that's an example of one of them. Yeah. So the first step is, is that is the observation. And then I also ask them to keep a thought journal. So to write down any negative thoughts that they have throughout the day, and they can do this on their phone, on a piece of paper, on a notebook to keep beside their beds. Although I do usually recommend to writing it down as, like right after you have the thought or as you're having the thought, because sometimes they're fleeting and they go away. Um, because the reason why I have them do that is back to that causal chain we were talking about earlier, which is that core beliefs lead to thoughts and those thoughts then lead to the negative emotions. And so it's, not, I guess, surprising to me anymore. It wasn't the start, but there's such a tight linkage again between the thoughts and the beliefs. So it's literally like drawing lines between, it's like connect the dots, like those exercises right. with those kids between things that are similar. And it's really, I think, illuminating for them to see that there's all these connections here. These are actually rooted in something. So that's step one is review. The second step is to rewrite. And so, by the way, did you have any questions about review? That you want yeah, to let's stay with review for a minute. Yeah. Um, because I know I... I'm, I know with review, it's it's so important to to bring in about that self-awareness. And and many people, I spend a lot of time talking about this, many people will stay on autopilot. And it's that experience of, you know, you're getting your car, you're done work, different now that we're in COVID, of course, but you're done work, you're driving home, and then you get home and you're, you don't even remember the drive home. And yet during that whole, whole time, you've been on autopilot, but your mind is going through different things. So what do you tell people in terms of how do we shift from this autopilot into our, our understanding of what our mind's doing? I think for the most part, when it comes to the thoughts, people have been pretty aware when they're asked. And I think maybe that's, it's like giving people the space to do that, Tracy. And mm. like, maybe they're on autopilot in general, but then when they're actually asked to sit down and focus on this task of going through, what are your the thoughts? It's surprising to me at how quickly people can actually come up with these. Um, and that they, they can then take the categories and then they can, or they can fill in the thoughts later. But I think the idea of, of this initial step is to get people out of autopilot. It's to help them have that self-awareness of here's what I'm thinking and here's what it's actually linked back to. And it's also very empowering to know that these thoughts actually are actually rooted in something and they do come from a place inside of me and a place that might need some changing. Mm, yeah, that awareness is so powerful. Okay, take me into the next one. So the second R is rewrite. And on this step, it's really about helping my clients to no longer subscribe to the beliefs that aren't serving them. So it's really about creating new beliefs that are going to serve you. 
And so if you can picture a piece of paper for this exercise, you have three columns. We just did in step one, we did the first column, which is the older existing beliefs. The second column is like kind of realistic beliefs, I call them. And then the third column is kind of like your ideal beliefs. And a lot of times people will just do the old beliefs and the new beliefs. But what I found is through working with people is that it's such a jump to get from like this older existing belief to what your ideal belief is that I put in this like reality category of a kind of like a next step to kind of get to the ideal belief. So again, it's, you- it's almost a sense of like, you know, telling someone um, that big jump, it's too much, right? Cause when you then go to that big jump and you say it, it's like, well, no, I'm not going to believe it. And so you discount it and you don't absorb it and internalize it when it's like going from zero to a hundred exactly it that's exactly it that people believe it more and believability is important when it comes to beliefs as you can imagine right so right so following the example of you know it's important what people think of me as being an old belief I find that normally it's helpful to do to do the ideal belief next which in this example could be like it is more important that I'm true to myself than what other people think of me and then do the realistic next belief, which could be like, I know I can't please everyone. So it's okay if some people don't like me. You can see the difference between the, like the three different ones um, where you have, again, the old versus ideal versus the realistic next step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of like um, a process in that sense of helping someone go from that really hard space, the the core belief that isn't really helping them anymore. Um, and maybe they didn't even, you know, when I think of core beliefs, it's often things that we don't necessarily want, right? We've just learned them. We've learned them from watching our caregivers, from our experiences, from, from things, from our relationships, from other people. But how important it is to then go into that space of acknowledging this, like, hey, this thought isn't serving me anymore. This belief isn't serving me. And then moving into that re- rewrite, what you said, and then rewire, which is so important when we think about this rewiring space. Yeah. And I, I do want to talk about that, but there's one thing actually that you said, Tracy, that made me think about um, a coach that I heard on another podcast. And I love the way she put it. She said that if you, so a lot of the core beliefs we've had, if you actually even write them probably today, a lot of them, you can probably link back to when you were like five or seven years old, like you've had them for a long time. So she said that if you, going through your core beliefs is like going through your closet and like almost like purging what doesn't fit you, like what's not fitting you anymore. What don't you feel good in anymore? Yes. And it's almost like if you don't go through the process, it's like almost like letting a seven year old run your life mm. when you changed and evolved so much. Right. And that really stuck with me when she said that. Yeah. I, I really like that analogy of being able to think of like what, who's running your life right now and what are the messages that are running with it? I, I, Amanda, I always use the analogy about gifts and I I like to think about, you know, for, um, you know, if we think of say the example of someone's mother as a perfectionist and had really high expectations. And then now today the individual is experiencing imposter syndrome, struggling with perfectionism and always having to get it right and can't make mistakes and, and the way I like to look at that is, you know, of course, our, our process in therapy and through our own work is not about blaming parents. Um, it's about seeing that our parents were doing the best that they could with 
that they had at the time. Um, and then being able to acknowledge that parents give us gifts and even us too now, eh? you and I are both mothers. So we're giving our children gifts. And, and then these, these gifts, we get to choose what we want to do with it. And sometimes we choose that actually, you know what, this space of holding myself to a high expectation is really helpful in this area of my life. But the gift, and and sometimes I describe it like it's this fur jacket and, you know, it's the middle of summer and maybe you don't want to wear that fur jacket. And can you then just take off the jacket and choose to say, you know, thank you for the gift. It's not something that I want to use right now. I I love that analogy. Um, Also, just because again, in recognizing that you, you outgrow things, right? Mm-hmm. And just because you liked that fur jacket at one time doesn't mean you're going to like it later. doesn't mean it's going to be serving you later. And so I think it's so important that we give ourselves the gift of reviewing our beliefs. And I think a lot of people don't take the time to do it um, because it certainly does bring up stuff also. There's certainly some questions that you're going to have, where did this come from and the blaming and really having to reconcile with some of that. So I don't want to oversimplify the process and it certainly can bring up some other emotions and things like that as we work through them together. Yes, absolutely. And you said you want to say more about the rewire piece. Yes. So the third step that I use with my clients is called rewire. And so rewire is how do you take this new belief system and how do you actually put it to use in your life? And so the good thing about beliefs is that we can choose what we want to believe and our beliefs can change over time. So that's the good news. But the thing with core beliefs is that it's not like the tooth fairy where one day we decided that we were no longer going to believe in the tooth fairy, right? And so a lot of the beliefs we have have been primed in our brains. There's, we have neural pathways and connections in our brain, probably millions or trillions of them. Um, and so we have all these pathways in our brain. And so they become primed over time. And we have really been telling ourselves these stories for a long time. So it's not something that happens overnight. So that's kind of really important in this step is that recognition that there is some time aspect involved in this, but really the rewire step is around trying new strategies and experimenting with new strategies to try to integrate that new belief system into your life. And so I, I help clients with this through things such as goal setting or even intention setting, deciding how they want to show up for meetings or how they want to show up in their work or with their kids Um, mindfulness also is a huge one on, on this topic. Also, it's like being a curious observer of your thoughts versus recognizing yourself as a product of your thoughts. And then self-affirmations is another really big one that I use And self-affirmations are, you know, self-statements and usually very aspirational about who the kind of person you want to be. And one trick when writing self-affirmations, oftentimes like you know, a self-affirmation could be that I am becoming, you know, let's say a world-class speaker or something like that. But, but writing I am becoming in front of it is really helpful when it comes to self-affirmation. So that's another one that I, I use a lot. And on the physiological side of things, I also try to use breath work with my clients and really try to let them let go of some negative thoughts and things like that. So movement, exercise, yoga, meditation, and then there's breath work, which I find to be extremely helpful with letting go of some of the, of the thoughts that do come up. And the final one would be a thought journal 
also is really helpful, as I mentioned earlier, but then also taking it a step further, which a lot of psychologists will call like a challenging thought record and actually dissecting the belief a little bit and unpacking that the thoughts rather mm-hmm. and really starting to understand is this, is this a rational thought? Is this a thought that's going that's helping me? Is this a thought that's based on my past experiences? Is this a fictitious thought? And so there's a lot of different ways that we kind of target it, but it's really important that we talk, that we go through or that you go through and identify some ways that you, that could work for you and they could experiment with. Mm-hmm. Those are some such great tips to be able to put into place and hard ones. I, I think it's it's important to recognize that we can sit here and talk about these things, but that th- this is something that you really have to practice. And going back to what you had said, the the idea of you have perhaps been telling yourself that you're not good enough for years, uh, you know, thinking from when you were five years old, and maybe not even a conscious thought, but something that has been subconscious. And so then to start rewiring this, this takes time and hard work to be able to create those new neural pathways, to become more aware of this, and to try on different things. I, I absolutely agree with what you said. And I think some of the strategies are certainly harder than others. Like, for example, mindfulness is one that comes to mind as you were talking. And mindfulness and that the practice of mindfulness and being a curious observer again of your thoughts and being focused in the present here and now um, is something that can take years to really be able to use that skill and to be able to exercise it. And there's, mm-hmm. and it's, just like, and it's just like anything. Some days you're going to be really great at being mindful and not becoming fixated on that, on that thought that you were having. And there's some days where you might need to go back to your, to your toolkit and try something else that could work for you. Maybe the breath work to kind of like get rid of some of the negative emotions, then try the mindfulness. Like, so that's where I was talking about the experimentation that I really use again with people to help them find what works best for you. It's so, it's so highly individualized. What, what do you think about the type of mindset that people need to have in terms of dealing with imposter syndrome? There is some research suggesting that having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset of like, this is all I have. This is all, this is what I got versus like a growth, a growth mindset is more about being forgiving of yourself. It's also undertaking the learnings from a situation and not being, it results in you not being as hard on yourself, I think is an important part of, of having growth mindset. So there's certainly some research suggesting that people with a growth mindset are a little bit less susceptible to imposter syndrome or will be able to manage it in a more effective way. What are the key pieces to a growth mindset? Because I, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right, but, but I know that it, it, it can be hard. It can be so hard to, to think of, you know, um, like, how do I have this growth mindset? Like, what, what does that mean? Like, what kinds of things do we need to acknowledge when it comes to that mindset? So there certainly would be some beliefs around achievement, around learning, some of the things we were talking about earlier. So there's certainly some core beliefs around that. But I think a part of a growth mindset is also when you do fail or when things don't go right is what what types of reflection questions, what, kind, what types of questions are you asking yourself? Like, for example, 
you know, what can I learn from this is like, you know, one of the favorite ones I, I always ask myself or like, you know, why did this happen? Like there could be a reason why this happened so I could learn from it. So really choosing to focus on the learnings from the situation or another reflection question is, you know, maybe thinking about a time when you did fail at something and when you were okay. So mm. when it didn't go well, but then still things ended up okay in the end. So also it, there's a process of like interpreting events that do happen in your life and which road do you go down? Do you go down the road of, you know, why did this happen? I'm such a failure versus what can I learn from this and how can I grow from it? Mm-hmm. Mm. One of my clients actually left me with um, a quote uh, several years ago and it's from Samuel Beckett and the quote is fail, fail again, fail better. And it's just such a beautiful quote when it comes to that growth mindset in the sense of we've got to be able to allow ourselves to fail in order to learn and grow. I'm also, yeah, related to that, Tracy, I'm also a really big fan of something called fear setting, which Tim Ferriss was, um, he might've pioneered the term. I'm not entirely sure, but really about trying to get us to move towards things that actually scare us and things that do give us some fear is yes. something that's really important to what you're, to your point. And so moving towards situations where you have to be vulnerable, where you might fail is something that is, it's an important skill. And it's one that we often, we avoid fear. That's the natural human tendency to fear is to avoid it. With fear setting, it's important that it's almost like goal setting, but it's, mm. but it's fear setting, but it's important that you carve out time for yourself. Um, Tim Ferriss recommends, I think once, at least once a quarter, if you can do it once a month and try to sign up, put your, put your hand up for things that, that scare you, that, that make you a little bit fearful. Mm, that's such a great idea. And, and also to the piece around that is, is again, connecting back to what matters to us and what our values are. And, you know, that idea of, of going towards something rather than moving away from something. So if something matters to you, you move towards it and, and, and go to, towards it rather than, um, you know, letting that fear hold you back. You use that fear to feel it and acknowledge that that's fear showing up and then still make the decision to act towards it anyways. I think that, I think that's so important for us to talk about that fear setting. Yeah. And I also love what you said because it's also, it's kind of like, how do you let, how do you use fear in a positive way versus letting the fear use you and really trying to reinterpret, I guess, the fear itself and how it can actually help you. So for example, when I work with clients, with public speaking anxiety, it, we talk about, can we instead look at the public speaking anxiety as performance energy as something that's actually going to help you? And in fact, there's a lot of research suggesting that you do want some nervousness there. It means that you actually really care. And so a lot of times it takes reframing the fear and reappraising the fear and not knowing that you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Letting fear be part of our life rather than something we need to get away from. So Amanda, then I wonder if someone's looking to do more work with such a difficult experience, where would you guide them? What what would you recommend for them? So there are many places where people can go for more information on imposter syndrome. 
There is an excellent book on imposter syndrome by Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin called Owning Your Greatness. And it's all about overcoming imposter syndrome and beating self-doubt. She also happens to have an amazing Instagram full of specific tools and tricks that's, again, all focused on imposter syndrome. Earlier in this podcast, we talked about the three R's and an exercise to uncover or unpack your self-limiting and self-defeating beliefs. And I have a detailed blog post on the how-to of this exercise, just in case you weren't able to get it all on the podcast here today. And I'd be happy to share this with you. So just feel free to reach out to me on Instagram or email me and I'll send you a link to the blog and the workbook. And for any listeners in the Toronto area that would like to work one-on-one on imposter syndrome, potentially, they are welcome to get in touch with me. I work with many entrepreneurs, leaders, students, and young professionals of all levels and of all cultural, racial, and ethnic backgrounds. And just as final aside, Tracy, I have a free resource that I also wanted to share with listeners. And it's not on imposter syndrome, but it's a resource that my team at my practice myself have been putting together that is all aimed to support leaders with cultivating psychological safety within their teams pre, during, and post-COVID. We all know right now, obviously with COVID, we're going through a lot of ambiguity and emotions are really high. And this workbook is also aimed at helping individuals communicate effectively with their emotions in the workplace. So I'm also happy to give you the link for the show notes on that one. And as we wrap up this conversation today, I wanted to share with you one of my favorite quotes on imposter syndrome. And it's by Marie Forleo, who is also the author of Everything is Figureoutable. And she says, be humble. Not knowing something doesn't make you a fraud. It makes you a student. I love this quote because people can relate to you more when you are humble and when we aren't know-it-alls. So let so use that humility to give you grace and let that humility help you grow and continue to really hone your craft. Thank you so much, Amanda, for spending time with me today and sharing your knowledge about imposter syndrome. I so appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. If you enjoyed listening to this episode today, or you know someone that you think would benefit from hearing about how we struggle, please consider sharing it with them. I would be thrilled if you left me a review and let me know what you thought, or take a screenshot and tag me at dr.tracyd and share it on your social media. And even more so, I would love to know what areas you struggle with that you would like to hear on the podcast. Thank you for tuning in. And remember, you are exactly where you need to be. Of course, this podcast is strictly for informational purposes and does not substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. Have a great week. What's up, guys? I'm Gabrielle Stone, host of FML Talk. After being love-bombed, married, and cheated on, trust me, I've got some perspective on love, heartbreak, trauma, and healing. FML Talk has become weekly therapy for my listeners, where I give you a safe space to heal with, of course, a few F-bombs thrown in. Fun girl talk episodes, solo episodes that will guide you on your healing journey, and guests with stories that will leave your jaw on the floor. Grab a cocktail and come hang with me every Wednesday on FML Talk.